Welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast for educators by educators. Can all students learn mathematics to high levels? What are the most effective strategies for teaching mathematics based on evidence? Is there a place for curiosity in the mathematics classroom? These are a few of the questions we will be discussing in today's episode of Deep Dive. And I'm extremely lucky to have with me today to discuss these topics, Liz, one of our Southeast Regional Senior Education Officers specialising in pedagogy, and Robin, a numeracy mentor who works in a primary school mentoring teachers and working with students on a daily basis. I would like to welcome you all to our second episode of Deep Dive and thank our guests for being with us today. Today we will be delving deeply into the area of mathematics. It is a subject that gets a fair bit of bad press. Surveys show that it is either loved or hated by students. I was a child who loved jigsaws, Lego and all types of puzzles, but found it difficult to connect a formula with a problem when studying mathematics. It wasn't until I was at university and looking at teaching maths that I had a realisation that this subject was not about memorising a formula to be regurgitated, but it was about patterns and connecting these to the problems in front of me. And as an educator, I then wanted to make sure my students had the opportunities to explore maths, not just learn rules. A good friend of mine always says, as educators, we should be empowering humans. Liz and Robin, I would love if you could share a bit of your educational journey with our listeners and also share what you think is one thing we can do as educators to help empower our students for future success in life. I might pass over to you first, Liz. Hi, everybody. It's so glad to be here today. My background is that um, I'm basically trained in primary and early childhood as an educator, and I've still got the same passion I had that many years ago, but I had various roles in regional office, mostly in mathematics and early years. But in 2003, I went to New York City as an education consultant and coach for mathematics and leadership. I was only intending to be gone one year, and it ended up being 17 years. So in that time, I completed a doctorate. And COVID's a pretty strange um, bedfellow and the pandemic brought us back here to work in Queensland. So I think that my passion for math teaching and learning has never waned. And I, I basically, I'm sure, Rob, you agree that I want kids to be motivated, empowered and engaged. I want them to enjoy time to think and work and communicate mathematically and to productively struggle. I want them to construct math understanding for themselves. I don't want too much. I want them to notice and reflect and act on their own developing processes as a mathematician. So I think the big thing for me in um, as educators that we can empower our kids for future success by embedding them in this collaborative culture where thinking, reasoning and making sense of math is the norm, all alongside that growth mindset view of learning. So collaborating with others, to me, builds kids' understanding, collaboration and communication. And I didn't grow up in a, in a um, school like that. I've got a really lovely quote that I really want to say to you. A worthwhile goal is to transform your classroom into what might be termed as a mathematical community of learners or an environment in which kids discuss, defend, justify and reason with their peers and their teacher. And in such an environment, kids share ideas and results and processes that determine the validity of processes and answers and they negotiate ideas in which they can all agree. And that rich interaction in such a classroom significantly raises the chances that productive, reflective thinking about relevant math ideas will happen. So, yeah, I think I'd foster, um, I think I'd focus on fostering um, a very respectful and caring community of thinkers and learners. 
And I know that that takes much time and thought at the beginning, not just the beginning though, throughout the whole year, every single day as a teacher, you're working hard to model that and build that understanding with norms and protocols to say that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay that you understand that mathematics is about communicating and depth is far more important than speed. What do you reckon, Rob? We are of the same vintage, aren't we? Aren't we, Liz? <laughs> yeah, very young, very young. <laughs> We've been around for a while. I started my teaching um, in 1977, which is probably about the same time you did, and um, at a primary school at, in Mount Gravatt South. And I've taught every year level in, in primary school. I had a big break when I had my family. I had a 15-year break with my girls and then went back in um, 2002 and did some relief teaching before getting back into teaching again. So I've been at my current school now for 20 years, longest time I've ever been at a school. Um, and it's my fifth year of being a maths pedagogical mentor at, at my current school. Um, just like you, Liz, I've, I, love, I love maths and I have a real passion for always looking for doing things better and finding new ideas. I love reading about, you know, best pedagogy and brain research um, the latest in that, attending webinars. I've just finished um, a Building Maths Minds virtual summit, which was on last week, which is, if, if you haven't been and used that site, it's it's got some fantastic videos on there from top American uh, mathematicians. The way I teach maths has changed a lot. When I was a young young teacher at first, I was very much the teacher in front of the class, the fount of all knowledge. I used to think that children who could fire their answers to their times tables really quickly were just, you know, the smartest children in the class and I would teach their teach set strategies to them. But over the years I've changed my philosophy around how children learn maths a lot and I know now that you it's really important to build that growth mindset in children and to give them the opportunity to, to develop their own ways of working, learn from their mistakes and, collab and collaborate with others. A real turning point for me was about 12 years ago when I went to a three-day professional development course with Charles Lovett, who is one of the founders of the Maths 300 site. And if you've never looked at that site, just Google Maths 300 and you will find a whole lot of really top lessons, over 200 actually, that are open-ended, investigative, focused on solving problems and teaching maths in a really positive way that leads to success for all students. To empower students, my main idea really would be, I think, to develop confidence in their ability to work mathematically. And I think too often we've streamed children and put them into, from very young ages, put them into groups of, you know, below proficiency, you know, and then there's the ones that are at and the ones who are above. And so these high and low expectations for students are set very early on in their learning and really affects them forever. And, you know, with the research that Bowler and Hattie have found that this streaming of children has a very low effect size. It's actually neutral. So we really need to think about how we're building confidence in our, in our young mathematicians. We want thinkers and questioners and collaborators. They're all skills that we need into the future. I love that, Liz and Robin. Um, great strategies to empower students for future success. 
When I was teaching, I think I always made a bet with my teaching partner and the probability of winning was pretty high. That bet was when we went to our parent-teacher interviews and when I was talking to the parents about students' performance in mathematics, I'd always get the same comment. My child's not good at maths because I'm not good at maths. An American educator and mathematics professor, Dr. Joe Bowler, makes the claim that everyone can learn maths to high levels. I'd like to ask our guests today, do you agree or disagree with this statement? And can you share from your own experiences as a student of mathematics and as an educator? You know, when I tell people my passion is mathematics teaching and learning, I often hear the comments, oh my goodness, surely not. You know, I failed at maths so badly at school, I could never get it. And it seems like that's a socially acceptable thing to say all over the world. I never hear the same comments of people saying they were so bad at reading. And, you know, there's a guy called Robert Moses, who I love, who says he describes our collective acceptance of low performance in math as distinct from our collective expectation that all children should and must learn to read. Pretty powerful. Parents will often say, you know, she's not good at maths because I wasn't either. And as far as I know, being good at maths is not genetically um, based. Now, a lot of research points to the fact that, t- in fact, teachers' and parents' attitudes have the most powerful influence on that st- on student achievement with that. So, yeah, I'm passionate about the fact that everyone can learn maths to high levels. Joe Bola at ucube.org. If you haven't looked at that website, everyone go to it because it's wonderful. Um, he talks about the way the brain grows and changes and that no one's actually born with or without a math brain. Um, she talks about when math learning does happen, that the brain responds in three ways. You know, new pathways form pathways are strengthened and that connections are made between pathways and you know when students know this and believe in themselves and like Rob said have got incredible confidence and efficacy in themselves they can believe they can do anything and achieve at higher levels it changes what they actually do and can do and it's based on that you know that old Pygmalion self-fulfilling prophecy effect so I you know I really like this comment it's by a woman called Wendy Ward Hoffer she's got a really great book out called Mindset Mathematics too and she's got we believe that maths is difficult or inaccessible, but the important work of maths is memorising and following procedures and that some kids are born capable and others aren't. We create classrooms where teachers are the experts, kids are empty vessels to be filled and failure is an acceptable option for some. We track kids by abilities, we let kids entirely off the hook. Yet if instead we believe that all students can and must learn maths, that the important work of maths is thinking and that all learners are capable of mastery. We create classrooms where teachers serve as coaches, facilitators, and kids engage as a community of learners. We all know that creating such a classroom takes courage, it takes effort and hard work and patience in ensuring the Australian curriculum is followed as well, but the payoffs are tremendous. So I'm talking about individual and collective efficacy there. I think the second part of the question was, can you share your own experiences? And I just remember as a kid at school, learning very easily. I had a really good memory, but I learned that seven and three equals 10. But what happened was suddenly in the test, there were seven cows and three more cows. And I'd often think, where did the cows come from? Like, that's not what I learned because I learned procedure. I didn't learn for depth of understanding. And so it wasn't until I went to uni that I actually discovered that maths was a science of patterns and relationships too. And I remember being astounded that I'd never been introduced to that before. And I, I think Simone had said that as well. So I became a passionate teacher of mathematics and I never wanted kids to feel that they couldn't do mathematics at all like I had felt as well. And I want to picture a group of kids. What's my main goal? Picture a group of kids when you say it's maths time, they erupt in cheers and excitement no matter the grade. And like 
that's like having your hair on fire about mathematics. So I wonder how many of us have that goal that that's, you know, we want to build that love of mathematics, one student, one teacher at a time. What do you reckon, Rob? I remember when I was a student in a primary school, I was in a special class, I had a, a principal was writing to the Cuisinier rods at that time and, and this we went every day to have lessons with him and I hated it. Even though we were using concrete um, materials to work with, it was very much him out front telling us what to do and chastising if we didn't get the right answer. So I didn't enjoy that at all. And then going on to high school, I actually started to enjoy maths. And I was a strange person who who liked all the rules and following all the rules and getting the right answer. I've liked that because I felt like that's what you had to do to achieve. But it's only really since I became a teacher that I love maths because it is a creative subject and one that you can think so um, flexibly and differently and there's so many ways to solve problems and so now I really love maths for a different reason. Going back to high school we had our textbooks and I became a very good decoder of textbooks. I knew that the all the problems would be exactly the same with a few contexts subbed in and different numbers and if I flick back they even gave you a little clue if you look at page 24 you can see an example so I could do that and then I could always check at the end because the answers were all there as well and I could work back from the answer and see where I made a mistake in that in that formula that I knew off by heart. As Liz has already talked to you about Jo Bowler, about her work and her growth mindset messages that everyone can learn maths to high level. So I certainly agree with her there. And it's really important to get children to believe in themselves um, for the teacher to find the maths in their answers. So if six times three and then someone says nine, you can say, I can see you're thinking addition. Well, six plus three would be nine. Excellent. But actually, we're thinking of multiplication now. So let's let's think about um, this again. Struggle and mistakes are really important. That's how you learn. And if you're getting everything right every day, there's not a lot of learning happening. And speed is certainly not important. Bringing speed in alienates a whole um, section of your classroom who think that they're no good because they can't um, spit answers out as quickly as other children. Oh, oh Robin, that reminds me of that article by, by Joe Bowler on ucube.org. It's called Fluency Without Fear. If anyone's interested, go in and have a look at it. It's a great article that talks about depth rather than speed and focuses on building understanding. If you look at the Australian Curriculum website and you have a look at the area of mathematics, it'll give you what it aims to do. And it states, mathematics aims to ensure that students are confident, creative users and communicators of mathematics, able to investigate, represent and interpret situations in their personal and work lives and as active citizens. If this is the goal for our students in mathematics, what do you believe are the most effective ways to be teaching maths based on evidence? I would encourage teachers to flip the gradual release of responsibility model. We all know the I do, we do, you do uh, model that we use a lot, especially in English, but in maths, it doesn't work so well. So if we flip that model to a you do, we do, I do, it takes the teacher from the giver of all knowledge to a facilitator, the role of facilitator. 
back in the I do, we do, you do times, the teacher would download a whole lot of information. They'd lead and show what show the children exactly what they needed to do. The students would go off and practice and finally they would just demonstrate their knowledge independently through some sort of testing situation. When you flip that model, it puts the students at the centre of their own learning. They can apply their own knowledge to un unfamiliar tasks. They build relationships between concepts and have ownership of their ideas. So you do, you launch and you release. You start with a problem and children work to make sense of it. While children are working to make sense of this problem, the teacher is walking the room, observing, talking, offering support and setting up further challenges. Teacher walks with intent, setting up for the we do, which is to come. The we do is the return. Students have had a go at making sense of this problem. They return as a group to the teacher and collectively collaborate. They work from places of understanding and they have maths arguments and, and critique their reasonings. I do at the end, instead of at the beginning, is where the teacher synthesizes and connects those ideas that the children have delivered. That's the way I think is a really powerful way to teach. What about you, Liz? Um, I'd agree. I, like when I look at it, um, we were all used to teaching in the old, very olden days. You'd see a lot of didactic teaching, which you, you were talking about, Robin, as well. But when you're talking about um, a, a, a revised model, you know, there's a thing called dialogic instruction. It's exactly what you just described. It's exactly that um, kids, you know, firstly actively engage, inquiring into new mathematics, persevering to solve um, any novel problems. And secondly, they participate in very much collaborative, accountable talk or discourse of, of, you know, making conjectures, explaining and arguing. And then thirdly, they engage in some generalisation and abstraction about it, thereby developing very efficient problem-solving strategies and relating their ideas to conventional procedures and also achieving fluency in meaningful ways. Interestingly, Hattie says that that's got an effect size of 8200s, which is huge. The other thing that influences me, and I'm very much a social constructivist in the way I believe kids learn mathematics, that they've got to construct meaning and make sense of it for themselves as well with expert guidance and facilitation. But NCTM's got a really great book. If you haven't got this book, it's called um, Principles to Standards, I think, or Principles to Action. Beg your pardon, I should know it. It talks about eight key principles of effective maths teaching. And when you think about them, they embody what Rob just said as well you know, establishing math goals to focus learning. And that might happen in the flipped lesson at the at the end, in the Congress part of it, in the share time, implementing tasks that promote reasoning and problem solving, using a wide variety of math representations. So kids are building really deep understanding about concepts, facilitating meaningful math um, discussions, posing really purposeful, assessing and advancing questions, and building procedural fluency from conceptual understanding first. And then supporting productive struggle in learning mathematics. And lastly, um, effort and use of evidence of um, student thinking. And, you know, those, those principles, you can't go past them. They're basically, they are personified in what Robin's talk, talking about in the flipped approach as well. Um, and they've got to be the grounded things that we use as teachers in mathematics to align to Australian curriculum as well. Before we leave today, from your wealth of experience, can you dig into your deep learning toolkit and share with the listeners one highly effective strategy that you use that allows for deeper thinking in the classroom? Liz, 
What strategy are you sharing from your toolkit? I really think a very, very important component of any lesson is the final congress or the final share time. And it's the one thing that people often don't get to, actually. Um, But in actual fact, if you value it, you get to it. So put a timer on and make sure that you actually have time for the whole class to reflect, often with a partner um, in pairs, but where teachers ask kids to reflect and self-assess their own learning against the learning intentions and success criteria. And why, you know, to me, when I'm doing that, I'm sending three key messages. This is important, number one. Number two, you can do it. And number three, I won't ever give up on you. And within that, I think there's a whole wide variety of really interesting pedagogical strategies that you can that are tied to both learning intentions and success criteria of the lesson. One example I particularly like is WODB. And so it's which one doesn't belong, WODB.ca. Another example that I really like is um, giving students non-example of the learning intention, putting it up on the on the smart board and saying, using one of the five talk moves that you use in mathematics, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to turn and tell your partner whether you agree or disagree with this statement and what do you think? But making sure that it's actually really tied closely to what was the goal, what was the learning intention of the of the um, of the lesson. And Robin, what is your strategy? Uh, my strategy is opening up questions. It's an effective and easy way to differentiate. There are several ways to open up questions. You can open up questions by working from the answer rather than asking, "What is seven plus eight?" Ask. If 15 is the answer, what is the question? Open up questions by removing parts. Instead of Lucy has two apples, which is nine less than Lucas, how many apples does Lucas have? Try saying Lucy has some apples. She has nine less than Lucas. How many apples might Lucy and Lucas have? Open up tasks by requiring students to choose their own numbers or create their own questions. There were 14 magpies and eight butcher birds sitting in the trees. What questions could the children ask of these? So my strategy, opening up questions. Why don't you try it? Thank you, Liz and Robin, for sharing your strategies today. I also have a strategy I'd like to share with our listeners. Early in my teaching career, I was lucky enough to attend a classroom essential stills PD with a gentleman named Paul Leach. He had this one statement that really stuck with me throughout my teaching career. The phrase he used was tour to be sure, meaning that a teacher needed to be up wandering the room, making sure that they could clarify learning intentions for students, that they could could activate learning that was going in different directions. At that time, as a teacher, you can also be gathering formative assessment and also showing that you're a learner alongside the students. Robin alluded to this strategy when she talked about flipping the learning in the release stage of the I do, we do, you do model. So I urge you, don't forget the simple phrase and give it a go in your classroom. Tour to be sure. We hope you find success with some of these strategies. I would like to thank Liz and Robin for sharing their insights today and being part of episode two of Deep Dive.